How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening and ready to uh, focus on what the scripture has to teach us and how God the Holy Spirit is going to apply it to our thinking. So let's bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come together this evening to focus upon your word, to be reminded of your grace that you have given us so much in Jesus Christ, and above all, that you have given us a salvation that we can neither earn nor deserve, but one that is freely given to us because of your love. And Father, we're thankful for the hope that this gives us, that no matter what our circumstances may be, no matter what we might face in terms of uh, difficulties and Uh, problems with secular powers and authorities, we know that we have a future destiny, that our our ultimate uh, objective here on this earth is to represent you and to represent your throne and to be examples of your grace to a fallen world and to make clear when we can the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Romans 13, we pray that you'd help us to understand the circumstances of the various examples we're looking at this evening and how they apply to our thinking and our understanding of the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the challenges that we see lurking on the horizon in our culture and one that many other cultures face uh, or Christians in other cultures face on a regular basis is a government that is has policies that are hostile to Christianity. And one example that has come up in in the last uh, 40 years or so has been the example that has been often used and is often used in literature dealing with civil disobedience, and that's the issue of abortion. But as we'll see tonight, abortion is one of those ambiguous areas because the decision of Roe versus Wade was not mandating that anyone get an abortion. That's what's tricky. Now, back in the late 80s, you had people like Randall Terry who uh, put together an organization called Operation Rescue who who tried to, who used twisted logic to try to show that what Christians should do is intervene even violently in order to stop uh, abortions from taking place. We live in a time today with the rise of various movements and situations and laws in this country, not just the issues related to the homosexual, lesbian, gay, whatever it is, uh, transgender, confused gender, whatever, that's putting pressure on the whole culture to validate and recognize their legitimacy. But we're going to see an increasing pressure come from especially the Muslim quarter, uh, 
Uh, we, it's already felt politically. We can see how things have changed in the last 10 years in the attitudes of legislators, legislators towards uh, Islam. And we have you know, people being called Islamophobics now and things of that nature. And as uh, the Islamic population in the U.S. grows, so too is their electoral power. And in another 20 years, I've heard it said that there will be enough Muslims in the United States to elect an Islamic Congress. Now, just think about that. I'm not saying that's true. Often these kinds of statistics and these kinds of projections don't come true. Part of the reason for that is because we have a sovereign God who has his own purposes. And another is that there are various other factors that, that uh, inter- intervene and change historical circumstances. But we do definitely live in a world where there is proposed legislation, there is acted, uh, enacted legislation that is more and more hostile or negative or at least less favorable to Christians and Christianity than what we have seen in the previous 200 years of this republic. And this republic is founded upon Judeo-Christian principles of freedom that come from a study of God's word. And so as Christians, we're going to be faced more and more with profound questions as to whether or not we are going to engage in some sort of opposition or disobedience to the government. We have examples that have come out in in um, in, re- in just the recent years of people who have um, uh, people who have businesses that cater to weddings, cater to other um, things where now you have uh, leg- the legitimization of same-sex marriage, and so uh, you have uh, homosexuals going to target Christian businesses, photographers, bakers, others who are engaged in the peripheral industries that, that support weddings, and then if they don't, um, they don't want to provide a cake or they don't want to uh, be a photographer, then they're taken to court. So you have Christians who are being excluded from the possibility of certain engaging in certain businesses because the government is pressuring them to that if you're going to do this, you're going to have to recognize the legitimacy of same-sex marriage. You have to treat them all the same, even if you're, it's a private private business. And of course, recently here in Houston, just and currently going on, we have this this equal rights ordinance that is being uh, foisted on the uh, Houston citizenry by our lesbian mayor, and it's and and it's redundant in everything but the e- equality in terms of those who are sexually confused, and that is the real thrust of this piece of legislation is to get something, no matter how mild it may be, uh, enacted. And that is the, the proverbial camel's nose under the tent so that that can then be exploited and developed over the coming, uh, coming uh, legislative seasons. And it may take two, three, or four years before we actually see legislation that mandates uh, that every, every business, because within this ordinance, uh, they changed it the other day. You, you've got to watch this. The pressure was obviously put on the city council by, by churches and by a lot of Christians that um, 
that forced the legislation to be postponed. They're not going to vote on it now for another two weeks, two weeks from uh, yesterday. And we just need to keep the pressure up. And they, But one of the amendments that changed was that it had applied to all small businesses of 50 employees or more. Now that's been reduced to 25. And within the legislation, in a certain amount of time, I don't remember what it was, and I think within uh, two or three years or five years, that's going to go down to any small business of 10 employees or more. And so that's how this is going to come in, in a gradu- this gradualization. But that's their agenda. The agenda isn't um, uh, isn't to just uh, have equal rights. It's it's not just a recognition of the civil rights uh, issues. It is uh, bringing this along, and we have to think um, a lot more intelligently upon this. And one of the things that we need to do, I think, is to put into the hands of city council links to organizations that have done a lot of work. On uh, and have good, well thought out, uh, medically sound, psychologically sound uh, studies demonstrating that homosexuality is not uh, something they're born with, but is a choice. It is a product of their own volition and their own decision, and that goes against everything that is out there. But a number of studies have been out there, and I'm going to try to research those and see if I can put some links together to, to uh, email out. Because one of the ways that we approach this is by showing the fallacy in the assumptions underlying uh, their desire to promote this and not just coming at it from a judgmental or condemnatory fashion, which is sadly the way too many Christians approach this. This isn't what the Bible says, I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. Yes, you're right. But we're going to see tonight that's not how you handle these kinds of circumstances. That's not how uh, wise examples from the Old Testament handle those kinds of situations. You avoid the head-on confrontation with the authority. There's too many conservatives who have the idea that the only type of assault that wins battles is a head-on assault. And the result of a head-on assault usually is is a loss or a failure. You have so many casualties that's called a pyrrhic victory because you uh, it's cost you too much to accomplish the end. And we have to avoid that. We have to think wisely and not just in terms of uh, throwing our fist in somebody's face and telling them that they're wrong. That may all be true, but we're, we need to win them graciously and not just engage in... Uh, hostilities and argumentation because that doesn't do anything more than to aggravate an already uh, contentious situation. We have to deal, and we're going to have to deal more and more with authorities and with leaders who do not think anything like us. And we have to learn how to think like they think, and we have to learn how to appeal to them uh, in terms of a value that they uh, that they hold to. Now, just in way of review, because we're going through Romans 13, we recognize the principle that we, are, the Christians are mandated to submit to government authorities. But this is not an absolute or unequivocal mandate. It's not a mandate without exceptions, because tonight we're going to look at biblical examples where believers violated or disobeyed the authority of governing powers. 
The second thing that we have seen from our study is that government authorities, whether saved or unsaved, are appointed by God. Paul is writing under the ungodly administration of Nero, even if it, he is writing during the early part of Nero's administration when he wasn't as openly hostile against Christians. Uh, Peter clearly says the same thing in the passages we've studied in First Peter, and Peter is writing during the second half of Nero's administration. Third, we've seen that resisting government authority is the same as resisting against God because God is the one who put that authority in place. Even Jesus recognized that in his interchange with uh, Pontius Pilate. Fourth thing we see is that the governing authority is God's servant, even though that governing authority may be an atheist or pagan, and God demonstrates that to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, which we'll see. Just a reminder as we go through this of the basis for government authority, we have the divine institutions, the three that were uh, instituted before the fall, individual responsibility, second marriage, and third family. And then fourth, after the uh, worldwide Noahic flood, we have the establishment of government, the delegation of judicial authority to Noah and his descendants in the most extreme example of judicial power, which is to... Uh, make a judgment and take the, uh, uh, in relation to murder and take the life of a murderer. And then the fifth divine institution is that of nations. So we've gone through this a couple of times now in the last couple of weeks, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But the first case I want to look at is the case of the tardy midwives in Exodus chapter 1. These are the disobedient midwives who have been ordered by Pharaoh uh, in, to to take the life of a male Jewish baby every time one uh, one it was born. Now, just for a little background, let's look first at verse 6. Joseph died. The first six verses sort of bring us up to date on, in a quick summary fashion, of the events that had taken place at the end of Genesis with the movement of uh, Jacob, Isaac, uh, excuse me, uh, Jacob, Israel, and his sons to uh, to Egypt, approximately 70, according to verse 5. Joseph is uh, one of his sons. He is the most uh, second most powerful person in the Egyptian uh, empire, and that's saying a tremendous amount because in the Egyptian kingdom, the Pharaoh was considered the, the, the embodiment of the god, and so he held absolute power. There's no one in our world that we're aware of that ha- that even dreams about having the kind of power that the Pharaoh had o- over the Egyptians. And there is a shift in terms of administration that's just covered briefly in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I have problems with a lot of the Egyptian chronologies, and especially the what is considered the uh, traditional uh, Egyptian chronology, which puts this after the rise of the Hyksos. That very well may be. There are a number of issues with Egyptian chronology, so I prefer not to try to identify any of this with a historical figure because the problem is our understanding of ancient history is, is not that clear, even though you will find people who will state it dogmatically it really isn't. I've heard a number of biblically conservative uh, archaeologists and chronologists who will argue at least 10 different uh, pharaohs and 10 different dynasties 
for identifying the Egyptian pharaoh. So I think it's a problem because if I stand up here and dogmatically say this pharaoh was so-and-so and then something is discovered 10 years later and changes that, then we've got a problem and my credibility is shot because I've identified it with the wrong one. And I think that, that there's certain uh, traditionally accepted chronologies that uh, that do have problems. So the, all the text... All the Holy Spirit thought that we needed to know was that a new administration came into power. It may be that this administration now, as a shift of families, a shift of dynasty, has a particular hostility towards uh, towards anyone who is not uh, Egyptian. There may be a strong xenophobic uh, nature to this new dynasty and maybe a desire to unite uh, e- Egypt and during the second intermediate period of um, uh, of Egyptian the the Egyptian chronology was a time when there was a lot of disorder and a lot of problems and so this may be an attempt by one of the pharaohs to uh, pull everyone together and to reunite them based on an ethnic heritage. What we do know is the scriptures make clear is that he did not know Joseph. He doesn't have a regard for Joseph, a respect for Joseph, or consequently a respect for Joseph's kinfolk, for his, uh, for the Jewish people that are now living within, uh, within the borders of Egypt. And in fact, he views them in a rather paranoid manner and believes that they are a threat to Egyptian sovereignty and Egyptian prosperity. And so he comes up with various strategies to try to destroy the power of the Jewish people because God has blessed them, and they have grown over a period of approximately uh, 350 years from 70 people who came with with, uh, uh, Jacob to approximately two and a half to three million, if we're to take the numbers uh, given in in Leviticus and numbers accurately. So there's a huge number of, of Jews now living there, and so they have become enslaved to the Egyptians who are using them for ver- various construction tasks. Many people believe that they were involved in constructing the, the uh, pyramids, and that may be true to some degree, but I believe... Uh, many of those monuments were built prior to this. But nevertheless, various ways in which uh, the Pharaoh sought to uh, control the growth of the uh, Israelites, and in verse 15 we see his uh, second attempt, and that has to do with this order to the midwives. We're told in verse 15 that the king of, Pharaoh, king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Puah. Now, there were, when you have a, a, a group of two and a half million people, uh, you're going to have a lot more women pregnant than two midwives can handle. These would have been the two heads of the midwife, uh, union, as it were. And so by calling them in, the Pharaoh was given instructions to them that would have gone to all of the midwives. And so he says to them, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. 
So what we see in verse 17 is an understanding of their thinking. They recognize the principle that Peter articulates in Acts in Acts 4, and that is that they are to obey God rather than man. Now, what we see here is, on the one hand, we see Pharaoh as the embodiment of, of God and the embodiment of the state of, of Egypt, and he is articulating and mandating a course of behavior to the midwives. The midwives disobey his order to them. He is not telling a third party to do something and they're getting involved or interfering with it. That was the problem with the Operation Rescue scenario, is the, that, that this doesn't fit what uh, uh, the situation with abortion and it doesn't fit with some of the scenarios that are going on with the, uh, with the uh, gay, lesbian, uh, transgender issues is because they, they put out these laws that, that we were just allowing these things to take place. They're not mandating that you as a Christian necessarily uh, break any law. Now, this is where it's beginning to shift because in the examples I gave earlier, when you have people involved in certain businesses that are, are related to weddings and they choose on the basis of their own beliefs to not be involved because it's a same-sex uh, wedding, then you have a, then you're going to have a problem because they're being told to do something that violates their conscience and violates their religious beliefs of what is right and wrong. That is what is embedded in your conscience is you have standards, norms and standards, and those norms and standards come from somewhere. And they're going to come from either God or they're going to come from the creation. And when they come from God, then you have to conduct your business life, your commercial life, in accordance with what your what the Bible says is right or wrong. Now, in certain kinds of law, you're not being forced to do anything. You're, you're, it's just allowing certain kinds of behavior. That's the way it is in uh, Roe Ro v. Wade is it allows people to uh, have an abortion. It's not forcing anyone to do that. The examples that we see in Scripture all fit this pattern where you have a king or an authority telling someone under their authority to do something that violates the revealed will of God. I want to emphasize that again. They're violating the revealed will of God, not a, an extrapolated theological principle, but something that is, that where God has specifically told them not to do something. In Genesis chapter 4, we have the recognition in Genesis 4 that murder is sin. We're told not to sin. And um, in the Ten Commandments, which will come later, of course, it says, Thou shalt not kill. But it becomes clear also from Genesis chapter 9 in, in the uh, Noahic Covenant that it is wrong to commit murder. And those who commit murder should have their life forfeited because they're taking the life of someone who is equally in the image and likeness of God. The rationale that God gives for capital punishment in relation to murder isn't as a deterrent. It's because you have now de- uh, so so fragmented your own soul, and, and and your own soul has become so so malignant from sin that you are willing to compromise the life of another divine image bearer. So 
the midwives understand this. According to verse 17, they recognize that God is has man, mandated that they should not commit murder. And because they fear God, that is, they respect God, and God is a higher authority, they disobey uh, the Pharaoh. And so this gives them their, their basis for doing it. But they ha- they, they're not going to go and walk into the courtroom of the Pharaoh and shake their fist at him and say, we're not going to do this. Notice they're not going to engage in a direct confrontation. They're smarter than that. They're going to handle it in a wise or skillful fashion. Remember that Hebrew word for wisdom isn't a word that relates to something that's an absolute right versus something that is an absolute wrong such as sin and righteousness. But wisdom has to do with taking righteous principles and then living them skillfully in your life and applying them skillfully in your life. And so they're going to use a skillful way in order to handle uh, the situation. So in verse 18 we read, The king of Egypt called for the midwives. After a while he notices that, that there's not a lot of funerals for male infants in, out in the Israelite community. And so he says, Why have you done this and saved the male children alive? In verse 19, the midwives reply. Now, it's interesting how they do this. They say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, it is often treated, this passage is often treated as if if they are lying or at least shading the truth a little bit. But that's not necessarily so. It could be that the instructions that uh, Shipra and Pua gave to the other midwives was just show up late. Don't show up on time. Drag your feet. Get there late so that you're not put in a position to, to obey the Pharaoh. And so uh, that very well could be the solution. There's n- nothing definitely said about, about this in the Scripture. But nevertheless, we also have the basis here for understanding that there may be circumstances where it is acceptable biblically to engage in some sort of covert activity in opposition to an evil king when that when it is specifically or directly related to the um, uh, to the mandates of that king. Now this is gets into a real sticky situation, and I'm not going to go off into that, but I want to make a comment about it. We have this situation with a uh, with a, possibly a lie. You have a clear situation uh, with Rahab uh, over in uh, Joshua, where she lies in order to protect the lives of the of, of the of the spies. And in both cases, if it's a lie, then they are engaged in deception in order to preserve life, which is a divine mandate. What's interesting in Joshua, and one of these days we'll go through Joshua, and this will be one of the things we look at, is there is a theme running all the way through Joshua related to deception. Not only uh, does Rahab engage in deception, but God engages in deception, and God, and militarily, God has the uh, Israelites engage in deception. For example, when they're outside of Ai, they set up an ambush and they send out a small troop to engage in combat with the soldiers from Ai. And then as they begin to uh, feign defeat and fall back, 
Then the men from Ai come running out to attack them, and then they fall back and run as if they're in full retreat, uh, luring the soldiers from Ai out into the ambush. This is just pure deception. And then uh, the the ambush is sprung, and the uh, soldiers from Ai are completely annihilated. That is a form of deception. So question that needs to be raised is when is it biblically viable, when is it righteous to engage in deception? And that's an important question. I'm not going to get into it now, but but if you are a believer and you're involved in, in undercover work, in, 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 in drug work, or you're involved in undercover work, covert operations in the military, covert operations in any kind of law enforcement, then you have to have a biblically thought out basis for this. Now, I've heard people talk about this about as much as I'm talking about it. I have a friend who is a graduate of Dallas Seminary, both his master's and his doctorate, and he's got another doctorate and two other master's degrees, and he's just brilliant, and he's been teaching military ethics at the Naval Academy for about the last 15 years up in Rhode Island. Now, not the Naval Academy, but the, uh, uh, what is that, the War College, Naval War College up, up in uh, uh, Rhode Island. And I called him up one day about six or seven years ago, and I said, Tim, have you ever thought this through? And it, there was just this dead silence. And I thought, how can somebody as brilliant as he is with all the background and all the t- thinking and everything that's going on, and he'd never thought about it, and he knew of no one who had ever used any of these issues in the Old Testament to try to develop a biblical theology of deception in relation to law enforcement or, or the military. Uh, God uses deception several times in the Old Testament in order to accomplish his ends. For example, in 1 Kings 22, uh, he, uses, um, uh, he uses the prophet Micaiah, uh, to, and, and uh, he uses the deception of the false prophets. So this is an important thing that, that can be left to another time. But what we see here in the main point is that you have an authority who is promoting a law that is an unjust law. It's an unrighteous law because it violates the direct commandment of God. God's direct commandments. I keep saying that because that's the issue. It, it, it's not... Just think, this isn't right. A 40% or 50% or 60% income tax just isn't right. I'm not going to pay it because that's not right. Well, the scriptures don't give a standard on that. And so if you're going to violate that, it's not this kind of a righteous disobedience. It may not be right in a relative sense, in your opinion or my opinion, but God, nowhere in God's word does it say, thou shalt not pay more than uh, 10% income tax. So we don't have a, a divine standard there. So you can't violate it. And this is important in other areas. When you're dealing with air, any area of authority, whether it's the classroom, whether it's military, whether it's the home, whether it's marriage, there are a lot of things that the person in authority is going to push you to do that may be really stupid, that you may really disagree with. Maybe it's not stupid. Maybe it's just a mistake because they're human. Maybe you have parents that did that. Maybe you have a husband that does that. Maybe you have teachers that did that. But the Bible never puts a qualification on those, those things. They may be foolish, but they're not unrighteous. They're not violating a specific righteous command of God. And so we as believers 
are to go the extra mile in order to obey that that law and that commandment or that mandate from the authority over us in order to be a good testimony before the angels and other human beings because authority is the central problem in within sin and within the angelic conflict. So the midwives are a good testimony, and the result of this is that God blessed them, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty, Exodus one twenty. Now, Exodus chapter 2 gives us a second example, and this is the case of the disobedient parents, because the parents of Moses are going to violate the, the, the mandate of Pharaoh. We read in verse 1, a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child there, and laid it on the reeds by the river's bank. So she is disobeying the the law of Pharaoh here, and she knows that. That's why they have to hide the child, because they know if a male child is known, then Pharaoh is going to take its life. In the New Testament, we get the comment by the writer of Hebrews, by faith Moses, when he was a boy, was hidden. So it wasn't Moses' faith, it was the faith of his parents. It's a passive verb there. The ones who performed the action of hiding him were his parents. And so they are trusting God. They hid him for three months, and because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command, they're going to trust God to take care of him and to provide for his life. And so once again, we see another example where they're not going in the face of the um, of the authority. They're not shaking their fist in the face of the of, of the Pharaoh. And they're going to trust God and do the right thing, even though it may cost them. And there's a willingness on the part of each of these individuals to take the legal punishment. They're not engaged in an overt campaign against the Pharaoh. See, that wouldn't work in that culture. Now, we can engage in, uh, in uh, press conferences like we had the other day. Uh, downtown on the city city hall steps that was very calm and very peaceful. We can engage in letter writing. We can engage in all manner of legal opposition to to uh, ordinances that are being proposed because that's the legal system that we have set up. And so as part of our citizenship, as part of what it means to to be a citizen of the United States, we need to be active and involved as much as we can. Otherwise, we just let evil take its course. So the result of their disobedience, God honors them, and we see that uh, verse 4, his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him, and then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maids walked along the riverside when she saw the ark among the reeds. She sent her maid to give it, and when she opened it, she saw the child, and, of course, you know the rest of the story that the child is taken out and is adopted into her family. So this is a, another example of this. It's an obedience to authority. Now, the next example I want to go to is in Daniel, and most of the rest of these examples all come out of the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of my favorite books to go through and one of my favorite books to teach, 
And uh, one of these days I'll have to repeat it because we went through Daniel back before we had video and everything else. Uh, But Daniel is a tremendous book, and it was never classified in the Old Testament among the prophets. Now, there's a lot of prophecy in Daniel. Remember, the Old Testament was divided into three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, the laws, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings of the Ketuvim. Now, the prophets were written by prophets, and they were had an official position in the Jew- Jewish culture as prophets and were recognized as prophets. But you could have the gift of prophecy and not be a prophet. King David had the gift of prophecy, but he didn't was not considered a prophet. Daniel is not operating in the land of Israel. He has been, he was taken as a prisoner back to Babylon where he was educated and then he worked his way up due to God's grace to position of second most powerful position in, uh, in a Gentile pagan kingdom. So there are a lot of parallels here for us. Here you have believers who were living in a pagan kingdom. That's why it's part of the wisdom literature, the writings of Scripture, is because it's showing how believers are to live wisely within a pagan culture. And so Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a part of this um, part of this example that we see, especially in in the first part of this this chapter that begins in Daniel 1. So we see here the third example, uh, which is the case of the wise students. We learn a number of different things from this, uh, this example, but we see how Daniel thinks about the situation. He doesn't just react to the situation. He doesn't fly off half-cocked. He, he thinks it through, and he's going to present an argument that is based on an understanding of what is valued by the person in authority. So we start reading in verse 5. These are the young men who have just been taken as captives in 605 B.C. by by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon, and they are going to be retrained and re-educated and brainwashed, as it were, through the education system of the Babylonians so that they can be totally assimilated within the pagan uh, pagan culture. Now, we have to understand that the role of the pagan culture in the devil's world is to put pressure on believers to get them to conform to the world. This is Romans 12.2. Uh, God says we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But the world does not want us to be a nonconformist. The world wants us to conform to its values and its standards, and so it's going to do everything it can to put pressure on us to conform uh, to its values. And when we were living in a country in the United States of America that was dominated by, by a majority that held to a Judeo-Christian worldview, then we were not in, in this kind of overt opposition. But the, the days of the dominance of the Judeo-Christian worldview are long gone. Many scholars see that its last waning year of influence was in 1963 or 1964 when the last light of the uh, residual influence of the truth of God's word finally winked out. And we had a major shift that occurred for a number of reasons in 63 and 64. This is about the time that you had the 
uh, Supreme Court decision that took, took prayer out of the schools. Uh, it was when you had the Beatles came to America. There were a whole host of things. The rise of the hippie movement, the anti-war movement against Vietnam could be traced back to there. A number of things happened that that the groundwork had been laid for 75 to 100 years, but that's when you saw the real the real shift take place. So we live in a world that is dominated by human viewpoint and trying to pressure us into it. That's no different from the circumstances with Daniel and his three friends. They're living in, a, in an environment, an educational environment, where they are expected to look and act and eat and drink and think like Babylonians. And so the way, to, um, the way that they began that, we see in verse, uh, verse uh, 3. The king instructed Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz is the one delegated to train uh, to train the, the, these Israelites. He's the master of the eunuchs. Now, eunuch may not refer literally to someone who has been emasculated. It could be, but it was a term that was generally used for those who were the upper echelons of, of, of bureaucrats within the uh, within the uh, uh, the palace. And so he's instructed to bring some of the Israelites so they had some way of testing them and identifying who the best and the brightest were. And they brought them uh, into a training school where they could be prepared to, halfway through verse 4, to serve in the king's palace and to whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And verse 5 we read... uh, we read, and the king appointed for them a daily provision, the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank. So they had the best food. All you foodies out there, and I know there's a lot in this church. I mean, this is this is the best of the best food that you could get in the ancient world. You would just love all of this food, but it was treif. That means non-kosher, according to the uh, laws of the Torah. And so... This It was going to be for three years of training. And at the end of this time, they're going to serve before the king. Now, in verse 6, the four are identified, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's the names we should always speak of them, uh, not their pagan names, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the other names given to them, uh, are identified in verse 7. And that was part of what how the state wanted to control uh, the individuals. But, you know, they didn't make an issue out of that. That's one of the first things that we should know. They were choosing their battle. They were given pagan names, and each of those names, in one way or another, honored one of the pagan deities that was worshipped by the Babylonians. And that's how they were known. They were no longer known by the name of Daniel and, and uh, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, but by the new name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they don't fight over that. See, we have people who are going to fight over every microscopic hill, and you can't do that. You have to choose your battles. You have to make wise value judgments as to what the battle is going to be and how determinative it is going to be. So... They don't fight over the fact that they're given a name change. There, there were probably many other areas where they, they did not fight. But what we see in verse 8, 
which is what's up on the screen, is the mental attitude of Daniel. Daniel really shows himself to be the leader of the four here. And we're told Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, there's a lot that's going on here and that is summarized in this particular verse. It reminds me of a verse related to Ezra in Ezra 7.10. Now, Ezra lived a little bit later than Daniel. Ezra was born during the captivity, and Ezra probably either knew Daniel as a young boy, and Daniel would have been a very old man, or he knew of Daniel. And uh, uh, there's a statement in Ezra 7.10 that Ezra set in his heart to know the law and to meditate on it and to apply it uh, throughout his life. And so that is a the same idea here. Daniel purposed in his heart. He made a decision emphasizing his volitional responsibility, divine institution number one. Daniel makes a decision that he will not violate God's law. This is a direct violation. Now, being named, being given a different name, and he was given the name of of a Belteshazzar, I believe, and that is not uh, Belteshazzar, and that is not an area that's mandated in Scripture. Scripture doesn't say, thou shalt not have the name of a pagan god. So he's choosing to draw the battle line where there's a direct commandment of God in terms of what should be eaten. And so he makes that decision, and he's going to go to the uh, chief of the eunuchs. He's going to go to Ashpenaz in order to have a meeting with him. He's not going to call him out in public. He's not going to make it a personality conflict. He's not going to challenge his pride of position. He's going to keep it private so that he can appeal to him in a way that can win the situation over and not aggravate a situation. Now, verse 9, we see that God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. This is a great example of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what Daniel is doing. Lean not on your own understanding. He's in a foreign culture with foreign ways. He's not going to let that intimidate him. And then, and God will direct your paths. And so he's going to commit it to the Lord. He's going to do the right thing. And he's going to let God handle the rest of the situation. And so he purposed in his heart that he would not do this. He meets with the, uh, meets with Ashpenaz. And they have a conversation according to verse 10. The chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who's appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than, than the young men who are, who are your age? In other words, we've determined on the basis of what the FDA says and all of the requirements of good nutrition according to the government that you need to eat this way in order to be strong, healthy, and uh, and smart young men, and this is what the king has mandated. This is the government diet program, and why should we let you eat according to a different diet? Because then you're going to be weak, you're going to be sickly, and uh, this is going to be a problem. And the hidden text, and it's going to be my head. That's what Ashmanaz is thinking. It's going to be my head on the block. So. 
In verse 11, Daniel said to him, uh, obviously he recognizes his authority. He's not challenging his authority, but he comes up with a solution. He's thought this through. We know of Daniel's later life that he was a prayer warrior. So he prayed through this, and he thought about it, and he said, okay, what's the real aim of, of, of this steward? What does he really want to get out of this? Because we've got to have a win-win situation. He can't uh, lose any prestige. He can't lose his uh, respect from anyone, and he can't appear to have given us some kind of a break, and then we don't perform well. Uh, we don't look well. So Daniel came up with a test. Now, anybody who's familiar with uh, dieting and exercise or anything clearly recognizes that in 10 days you may not see much of a difference. But remember, these are probably 14-year-old uh, teenagers, and so their metabolism is a little bit different than uh, than people who are a little bit older, and so they would see a response to this diet change pretty rapidly. And so he says, just give us vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then after 10 days, let us be examined. We'll have an evaluation, and you can look at us and see how we look and how we perform to see if we look sicker, are we thinner, do we look emaciated, or, uh, do we, uh, are, we perform- are we underperforming? And so he makes a deal with him. And uh, he does it in such a way as to win him over, not to create or aggravate the conflict. That's something we need to learn in these kinds of political situations is how to engage the opposition in a way that, that doesn't aggravate and inflame the situation. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, at the end of 10 days, we read that um, well, that takes us beyond that passage. We see the results. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Now, that's the hand of God. That's trusting in God, and then God is going to bring uh, the increase. God is going to bring the results. And so as a result of that, in verse 14, Ashpenaz con- consented with this. Uh, at the end of 10 days, they, they, uh, then the steward said, excuse me, verse 16, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So at the end of the three years, these are the four who are at the top of the class because they not only... Uh, focused on God's priorities, but they continue to act well and they continue to study well and to perform well so that they would not be, uh, that they would not be accused by Ashpenaz of, uh, having problems because they didn't have the right, uh, the right diet. So what we see here in terms of some basic principles in relation to, 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 uh, handling an opposition with the authority is, first of all, they chose the battle, which we already talked about. Secondly, Daniel exhibits authority orientation and humility all the way through the situation. He never lets his pride get engaged. He never gets angry. He doesn't get emotional. He remains relaxed and respectful and is polite in dealing with the person in authority. He is not engaged in a personal assault. Third, he's thought the situation through, and he's anticipated the objections 
that Ashpenaz might have, and he's already got an answer prepared. And so when Ashpenaz presents his objection, Daniel is prepared, and then when uh, Daniel uh, gives his case, then he gets an opportunity to move on it. A fourth observation is that he understands his opponent. He understands the values that he holds personally and in terms of his pagan system, and he is not, he's going to appeal to him on the basis of what Ashpenaz values, not on the basis of what Daniel values. In other words, he's not going in there and throwing a Torah scroll down and saying, this violates my rights as a, as a believer, and it violates what God says in the Torah, and so I'm not going to do this, and you're just a stupid pagan. He's going to win more with honey than he is with vinegar. Uh, fifth point is that uh, once they have won that stage, then it put them in a very positive light, and we see in the coming chapters that it's going to give them more and more opportunities to be a witness and a testimony to their uh, to God and to His grace and provision. Now, when we come to Daniel chapter three, we're going to come to the next situation, which we'll close with. We'll probably look at the last ones next week. And this is the case of the deified statue covered in Daniel chapter 3, the case of the deified statue. So now there's going to be a direct confrontation with um, with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 1, we read, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. So he builds this huge image of himself because he is so arrogant that he thinks he is God He's going to make himself God, and everybody in the kingdom has to worship him. So it sets it out in the plain of Dura, which is outside of Babylon, and this is large enough so that hundreds of thousands of people can all gather together in one huge ceremony in order to bow down and worship uh, this idol. So he brings out all of the government employees, all of the government officials, all of the princes, everybody involved with the government, and then all of the citizens. And then he announces what they are going to do: that they're going to have a, uh, a, a they're going, they have an orchestra there or a band that is going to play. And when they play, uh, play the sound, then everybody is to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And there's a penalty given in verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And so once again, we have the same kind of setup. You have a person in authority who is telling the believers directly that they are to worship an idol. This is, again, a direct violation of the command in the Torah that they should not worship anything other than the Lord God. They should not bow down and worship any idols. And so it is a command that is in direct uh, violation of a specific, precise statement of revelation from God in terms of their behavior. And so this is set up, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. We don't know where Daniel was. He's not mentioned here. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there, and uh, they have made enemies by now. Anybody who is successful is going to eventually develop enemies, 
and there are going to be those who are jealous of them who wish to get them out of the way so they can advance, and that's exactly what has happened here. This is also an example of an, of an early uh, form of anti-Semitism because they are being targeted because they are Jews. In, this, in verse 12, uh, their enemies say, There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So when the orchestra played, when the band played, they refused to bow down, and this has been noticed and observed, and so an indictment is brought against them before Nebuchadnezzar. And so he calls them uh, before him and explains the situation and warns them again of what the penalty is at the end of verse 15. If you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of this burning, fiery furnace, and who's the God who will deliver you from my hand? So Nebuchadnezzar makes the issue a challenge with their God. All of these issues ultimately come down to a challenge to your ultimate belief system. Uh, we were talking the other day about how to handle situations that might come up going down to uh, City Hall, and there are people down there who may want to, uh, I told the other guys, they may want to involve, get involved in some sort of confrontation, and you never know what news media you're going to, going to do. And I've certainly learned over the last 10 years or so never to give an interview to anybody in the media because you never know what they're going to say or do with it, uh, no matter what kind of controls you may put on it. Um, and you have to be very, very careful. So it's better just to, um, better just to keep your mouth shut. But what happens is, and I, sh- I should have put this diagram up here, is that, uh, and I've used this before, is that when we engage in a lot of political argumentation, we're basically arguing. If you take, if you think of the image of an iceberg, where 10% of it is above the water and the rest is below the water. You have two icebergs, and they're arguing back and forth in terms of that 10% that's above the water. But the real battle is what's not being talked about and what's not being observed, which is below the water. Yours and mine, everyone's political beliefs, are an outgrowth of their ethics. But we're not engaged in a debate nationally with over ethics and what is the right ethical system. But ethics... in are in turn an outgrowth of your view of knowledge, your view of what truth is. That's known in philosophy as epistemology. And so that is below the level of ethics. Your ethics reveals your epistemology. As a Christian, your epistemology is, yes, there is absolute truth. I know what it is because God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has revealed it to me. So I believe in absolute truth. Whereas the pagan has a view of relative truth because there's no eternal absolute. And if he's a secular evolutionist, there's nothing eternal except for matter. And so truth is always relative. And so there's no absolute, everything is going to be negotiable and everything is changeable. But your knowledge is predicated upon something even more basic, and that is your view of God. Uh, This is what uh, philosophy identifies as metaphysics, that which is beyond the physical. And so it's metaphysics that is the the domain of the study of the existence of God. And so underneath everything else... The, the subterranean level is really your belief in God, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar points, points out here. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? 
He understands that the issue isn't whether you're going to bow down, whether you're going to accept his religious system, whether you're just going to go through the motions or not. The issue is his God or your God. That's the issue, or the God of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And listen to their answer in verse 17. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, we've no need to answer you in this manner. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they take a firm stand on the absolute. They're not being disrespectful. They're not, uh, they're not trying to make it a personal confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, but they understand and they make it clear that the issue is between their God and his God. But even if their God doesn't, deliver them. He's capable of delivering them, and they're not taking their stand on any belief that somehow God's going to perform a miracle. They're going to name it and claim it, and they're going to uh, uh, take dominion in the name of Jesus or any of the other nonsense we usually hear from Christians today. Uh, they're just going to take their stand for what's right. They're not uh, inflaming the situation. But of course, because they take a stand quietly and firmly against Nebuchadnezzar, then he just flies into a rage in verse 19, and uh, so much so that it's self-destructive. And he tells his, uh, his, the military guys who are taking care of the furnace to stoke it up all the way, and it becomes so hot that it even kills the men who are trying to take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And eventually they are cast bound into the midst of the fire, but they are delivered miraculously by God, And when the men who are attending the fire look in, they can see that instead of three men, there are four. And in verse 25, we read, look, I see four men loose walking. And so the the fire was definitely hot enough to burn off the cords that were binding them, uh, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And so this is, I believe, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered them in the midst of this great test. And so this is, again, a situation where they exercised wisdom. They stood their ground. They didn't make a federal case out of it. But when others brought the charge against them, then they had to take their stand, and they did so willingly. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look at a couple more examples from the Scripture to wrap this up, but what we see again, and I also will come back and talk briefly about this issue of uh, the Magdeburg Confession that came out of the Reformation and the this this doctrine of the uh, of the lesser magistrate that is uh, used and has been used in Protestant circles since the Protestant Reformation to justify a certain form of uh, of civil disobedience. We'll talk about that. Uh, after after we go through the biblical examples so that we understand clearly what the Bible teaches and have that framework to evaluate these other thoughts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through these examples this evening. We thank you for the clarity of your word and that you have provided these things for us so that we can learn from their example, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to uh, think clearly and precisely as we face Uh, various uh, issues in our own time related to political dominion of a secular government seeking to force Christians into its, its mold 
and how we need to act in wisdom and in grace and humility as we try to live our life as witnesses for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.